Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I have Alyssa with me and we're going to talk all things threat modeling. Um, Alyssa, what is it that you do and, and what brings you to the topic of threat modeling? Yeah, so uh, Alyssa Miller, I'm a hacker, a researcher, and uh, ultimately an application security advocate. And that last term kind of holds a dual meaning for me these days. Um, personally, an application security advocate in that I enjoy getting out in the community talking about ways that we can be better in terms of application security and also delving into many other uh, security related topics. But now that's actually my title as well. I work for a company called Sneak and we're focused on open source security. So a lot of the work that I do now for my day job is really uh, blogging, speaking, uh, doing research projects centered around how do we improve application security from the, the security perspective and work better with developers and operations teams and even the business uh, around securing the product systems, things that we're creating every day in our brave new world of <laughs> ever-expanding <laughs> technology. Okay, sweet. So, so an advocate is an interesting job title, but it's um, all things improving security by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, I actually, it, it's funny, I used to use the term evangelist, and I never really liked that term, because it always kind of implies, like, I've got this belief system, and I'm going to cram it into your head no matter what, whereas I actually, the term advocate just seems so appropriate, because it's really what I do on a daily basis. I'm just interacting with a, a community of people in security and in DevSecOps who, you know, are are certainly motivated to continue to improve security, but uh, a lot of times it comes to that sharing of information back and forth that mm -hmm. we, we find those true nuggets of here's how we could get better tomorrow than where we're at today. Yeah, that sounds great. And the topic that we have set for today is threat modeling and, and how that links back into DevSecOps. But before we get into that, um, can you give us a quick introduction to what is threat modeling? Yeah. so. Honestly, um, I, that is where I always like to begin because if you go out and you search, there's a million different lengthy uh, descriptions you can find. You know, OWASP has their definition, Wikipedia's got another, Microsoft's got another, you name it, wherever you go, everybody's got kind of their own definition. And so I really struggled to just come up with, I shouldn't say struggled, but I really just focused on coming up with a very succinct description. And, Threat modeling, ultimately, as I see it, is looking at a system and identifying the things that could go wrong so that you can inform your system's development throughout the rest of the life cycle. So at its core, it's, yeah, it's just asking the question, hey, I'm going to build this thing. What could possibly go wrong? Or I'm going to have this system. What could possibly go wrong? And then responding to that. Okay, so that sounds quite generic then when you put it like that, like what could go wrong? Is that um, always a security focus or is threat modeling possibly a little broader than security? Threat modeling can definitely get broader than security. I mean, certainly my focus on it is as it applies to security and privacy. Um, but you'll see people talk about threat modeling in terms of even just 
everybody's personal threat model. How much information do you choose to share on the internet based mm -hmm. on what kinds of threats that could result in for you? And everybody's got their own threat model. So you'll see, and I think that's where some of the confusion comes in too. People use that term because it is a term that's much broader. Um, but, uh, you know, like, like any security practice, it, it, it's got to be tailored for the organization or the person that's going to use it. And it, it, the methods and, and practices that you follow for it are all going to be different based on the situation you're in. Okay, so if, if somebody's hearing this and sounding like, okay, this makes sense, you know, we're going to ask questions about our systems and see what can go wrong. Um, how, do they, how do they start with that? Like with threat modeling, where do you begin? Do you get out a network diagram or do you look at code first? Like what, what's the first steps? Yeah, so traditionally, and this is where things kind of, this is why I had to come up with this topic and, and this definition for it. So traditionally with threat modeling, the overarching generally accepted approach is you would start off by creating what we call a data flow diagram, okay. which is I'm going to map out this entire system, all the components, where data flows throughout it, where there's trust boundaries between different components. So if I have service A talking to service B by an API, mm -hmm. well, there's a trust boundary there because I have to authenticate something. And so in the traditional sense, threat modeling was always very technical and it was very heavy weight as far as the methodology because you had to create this big diagram that covers your entire system that you're looking at. Yeah. So you say traditionally, does that mean that you disagree with that approach of, of taking things from maybe a technical view first? Not that I disagree with it, but I don't think it works anymore. Um, as we move to more of this DevSecOps world, and I mean, I, I say as we move to it, people have been doing DevOps, that's been a topic for 12 years now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, DevSecOps, I think, really got its birthplace in 2012. So we've been at that for eight years. But I still run into people all the time who say you can't threat model in DevOps because threat modeling breaks DevOps. And there's legitimate reasons for that when we consider that traditional approach where you needed, just to be able to do that work, you needed a long design cycle yeah. that just simply doesn't exist when you're doing DevOps development. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess the, the problem is um, the way that you're designing and building being different to um, how we were previously modeling. So I guess if we're not taking the traditional view, if we're looking at this more DevSecOps focused view, um, where do we start now? So what I tell people is we've been saying push left forever in security, right? I mean, at least the two decades I've been in security, push left has always been this concept. Well, when you think DevSecOps, what's the farthest left you can push? Well, it, it's the user story. So if I've got something that I know takes a little bit of time and effort, if I can push that all the way back to the user story, now it doesn't impact the rest of the timeline because the timeline or the pipeline doesn't begin until I take that user story from the backlog and I make it part of my sprint. Mm -hmm. So my focus with people is bring your business folks in, bring your developers together and start the threat modeling at the user story and limit your scope to just that user story. Instead of trying to threat model an entire system, think about just what does that user story introduce in terms of threats so that when a developer gets assigned that story as part of their next sprint, They've already got the information that they need 
and in language that they can understand so that they can now plan out and build the security controls that are going to be necessary to address those threats. Yeah. And so that's really my focus is it's moving away from all that technical jargon. Like we've got frameworks like Stride and Dread and Pasta and all these things that we use <laughs> for threat modeling. And it, 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 they're also super hyper-technical focused. You have to understand all the terminology. Let's get away from that. Let's use the terminology we already have. It's called plain language, whatever you know, language we're writing in. Let's use that. And let's just use plain language to share this information back to, like I said, what can possibly go wrong based on this user story that I've created. Okay, so what kind of threats would we be looking at here? So you mentioned earlier things like um, security and privacy risks. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you're looking at just from the user story side of things, what does, you know, what could go wrong mean in that context? Yeah, so really it's, think about the, again, the plain language descriptions of threats. What are the threats? Uh, someone could steal. So there's a threat of theft. Yeah, that, that was a tough one to spit out. Um, <laughs> you know, there's the, threat of private data being exposed. There's the threat of your service, your critical services being interrupted. So if we think about, you know, industrial control systems, for instance, that's a big threat, right? Um, if we're controlling a production line or we're trying to deliver electricity to homes, interruption of that service is a major threat. Um, there's the exposure of secrets. And this is beyond private data. So this might be like intellectual property, or this might be secrets that actually exist within the functioning of the system itself. Yeah. So how do you, when you're looking at threat modeling and you're looking at, you know, this, this user story within the DevSecOps context, how do you know when you found all of the threats? And really what I'm talking about here is things like, um, how do you as a team gain confidence that you've thought of everything that can go wrong given that um, some things that might not be a concern for you might be a concern for other people. So to give you an example, it would be things like location tracking, right? A lot of mm -hmm. people don't consider location tracking a big deal. Yeah, maybe it's a privacy risk, but it doesn't affect them. But then you think of more diverse groups where you bring in risks like um, stalking and abuse and those kinds of things. How do you make sure that your team understands all of the what could go wrongs? So I love this question because it, it gets me going down a path that I, I really love to focus on. And that is you will never identify all the threats, mm -hmm. period. End of story. I don't care who you are, how great you are, how long you've been working in security and privacy and everything else. No one person is ever going to identify all those threats. And that's not a realistic goal. So first of all, what I tell people anytime I'm talking about security concepts, because we traditionally in security, we think in terms of that absolute, right? Yeah. We have to find all the bugs. We have to fix all the bugs or we're going to get hacked. Well, yeah, there's some validity in that, but we really need to stop thinking that way. We need to start thinking in terms of continuous improvement. I call it the other CI. Mm, so people, yeah, yeah. you know, talk about CICD, continuous integration, continuous deployment. Well, I talk about continuous improvement. Our goal has to be to be more secure tomorrow than we are right now. Um, but to the end of trying to do a comprehensive job of is identifying as many of those threats as possible, this is where it's crucial that you have a diverse collaborative set of people working on identifying threats. So I mentioned the business people. A lot of times the business side context mm -hmm. isn't even included in traditional threat modeling uh, methodologies. 
they'll get maybe developers and uh, maybe ops people together. Maybe they'll bring in the security folks, the networking team, whatever. They'll bring those people together. But it's all very technologically focused. Mm -hmm. When you bring in business now, and you have the business actually thinking about this first as they're writing the user story, suddenly you get a very different perspective on what matters because the business now is thinking far more about those edge use cases like you mentioned, mm -hmm. where maybe we would have users who would fit this profile where stalking is a particular concern. Um, and that now you, you bring in that, that greater context. You may even wanna draw in people from your privacy organization, from your compliance and governance organizations to be a part of that threat modeling. Because at the end of the day, that's what threat modeling is supposed to do. It's supposed to give us that view um, from a very functional perspective. Here's the threat. Now I can take that information, I can translate that into all the, the crazy technical categories that are in stride and, and say, okay, yeah, this threat represents spoofing or tampering or repudiation or on down the line. But getting that more that functional view along with the technical view, that diverse set of perspectives from within the organization, that's how you get that more comprehensive identification of the different threats that could exist given this particular user story. Yeah. So it's uh, continuous improvement. I like that as a, as a term for, for building security. That sounds pretty good. Is, is that the, the only aspect then? It's just um, another area that we can push left and start moving threat modeling left into looking at the user story and how it impacts the user story? Or, or is there more to bringing threat modeling to DevSecOps? Oh, there's definitely more. So um, a, a couple things of note is, so uh, Puppet and CircleCI did a report this year. They do it, I think it, it's, they've done it annually for a couple years in the past too, their, their state of DevOps report. And one of the things they looked at was uh, how often certain security practices are executed versus the value of that security practice to overall security posture. Mm -hmm. And they laid it out in this quadrant. And what, what, we, what they saw was that the one that had the greatest impact but was conducted almost the least out of any security practice were collaborative threat models. And so the reason threat modeling is so crucial is it doesn't just impact that farthest left stage where we do it. It's not just a point in time thing. Mm -hmm. When I identify those threats, that information carries through every phase of the pipeline all the way to the far right end in post-deployment. Mm -hmm. So if you think about this, I, as a developer, I take my user story. Now I know what the threats are. I can, in the planning phase, I'm planning out what the security requirements would be to address those threats. In coding, coding and committing cycles, now I'm actually building those security controls and perhaps I'm working collaboratively with my security team to make sure that I'm designing controls effectively. Then from there, I can use that same information now in a specific, you know, the threats and the controls that I've developed to address those threats, that informs my testing process. So now I can build test cases off of these documented threats and these documented security controls that I've created. Now I get to the point, okay, I've moved through my testing, I'm ready to promote this to production and deploy it. Well, now that same information about those test cases, how did we test them? What were we testing as far as the controls and what threats were they addressing? 
All of that is information now that I use post-deployment to build my monitoring. So I know specifically what behaviors I need to prioritize my monitoring systems to watch for. So rather than running through you know, massive logs for my applications looking for every possible scenario I can ever think of, I know what the things are that are crucial to my application and I can set up that monitoring. So in that way, threat modeling, we started on the far left, but it has influence across that entire pipeline. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How would you uh, recommend people look at implementing that then? Is it just that at every stage you have time aside to say, okay, what's the next thing for the threat model? Or is it something that you design in right at the very beginning? These are the actions that we would take at every, at every stage. Well, see, this is why I like putting it in the user story because ultimately the user story lives through that entire, entire cycle as well, right? I mean, you don't, you don't close a story until you've completed deployment of that story. So now you have this information. And what I, my suggestion to people is, again, when you have the business write the user story, that's where it begins. They start identifying the threats. Now, as developers are taking that story as part of their sprint and they're going to implement it, they can be updating that user story because they should be because their testing teams are going to leverage that user story as well. So the developers are updating it with the information that they have. Maybe they're producing artifacts from builds and so forth that they can also pull information from. But continue to build it and keep that user story dynamic and flowing. Now you get to testing and testing can talk about how this particular user story was tested and that can be documented inside the user story. And then finally, you get to your post-deployment where now we can implement that monitoring and everything you need is right there in one place. So it's a little bit different way of how we treat user stories <laughs> than maybe we have in the past. They become a little more living, breathing documentation than they were in the past. But it, it gives you that single point where everything that you need to understand for each phase of development now is in one place. Yeah. And it makes that backlog so much more valuable to you. Yeah. So as you as you go through, you're kind of gathering information from each stage then. So instead of having a user story that you write at the beginning that is static until you've um, implemented that functionality, it, it's more like through every stage you're kind of updating how that stage has impacted the threats. Exactly. And it, it works out really great then too now. And this is the other key. Don't forget about your retrospectives. Mm. If you're doing retrospectives on your sprints, that is a great time to grab that user story and say, let's look at this. Let's talk about what we did here because now you can leverage that in the lessons learned. That That's continuous growth as far as a skill set for your developers and, and anyone else who hopefully is also involved in the retrospective. Hopefully your retrospectives aren't just your dev teams, but you have that ability to really augment the knowledge base of everyone involved as now they see, yeah, this is what we did and it worked really well. Or we, I did this and in testing they found it didn't work so we had to do something different. That, that's a great way to continue to build off of that knowledge without having to send people the formal secure code training and other things like that. Yeah. So say people are listening into this podcast and they hear, okay, this makes sense. We're going to look at you know, for each user story, what could go wrong? And they, they've understood so far. Um, how does uh, different threat actors play into this? Because of course, there's different things that could go wrong. We mentioned privacy risk earlier as an example, but 
Um, how do you take into account things like the fact that there's different kinds of hackers out there and that the things those hackers might want to do would differ, their motivations differ? So again, that's where it comes back to, you have to understand what's gonna impact you. I, to be honest, I don't care if it's a nation state or a single lone actor, you know, mm -hmm. kid in the basement type, <laughs> you know, that, that, that horrible trope that we've tossed around for years. Um, I, I really don't care if they're out to expose this uh, private health information that I'm storing on my users. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who's trying to do that. I need to pr be protecting that health data. Yeah. And yes, there may be different actors and that may inform the level to which um, I might prioritize building certain controls. But at the end of the day, I have to defend that data regardless because what I care about most isn't who gets the data. I care about that what happens when that data gets exposed and stolen. And it's that I now from a, I hate to say it, from a raw business perspective, it's a financial issue. It's a yeah. compliance issue. It's things that impact me. Now, from an idealistic view, of course, I've also just exposed a lot of people's really private information, and that's really bad. But to be fair, when it comes to selling something to the business, we have to think about the business impacts of it. And it's a costly thing. And it, it, if, if my business centers around, this is where I need to understand what my critical assets are to the business, that PHI data, that, that personal health information, that's a critical asset that I hold as a company. If I'm holding that information, hopefully it's because I'm using it. If I'm not using it, I shouldn't be holding it in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, if, if it's something that is crucial to my organization, it's something that we drive revenue from, it's something that we drive competitive advantage from, that's something that is worth my, me protecting, whether I'm protecting it from uh, nation state actors, targets of opportunity, you name it. Okay, so it's less about the methodology, uh, less about, about the motivations and more about just the what have we got that's critical and how do we protect it? Yeah, I mean, the motivations might inform you a bit as to what types of things they might try to compromise. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly, um, you know, would a nation state actor be after different information than, say, you know, somebody who is, uh, you know, just a, a lone actor, you know, someone like me who is, you know, 12 <laughs> years old and wanted to steal video games or something, right? I mean, a very, very different story depending on who your, your, your profile as an organization is. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, what you care about is defending the, your crown jewels or your critical assets. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier um, using some of that information to prioritize, uh, you know, deploying certain security features and those kinds of things. How does an organization get confidence in when they have deployed enough security at each layer? Um, you know, is, if an organization is thinking, well, maybe a nation state wouldn't target us, does that feed into um, how they should prioritize and then where maybe they, they stop with security? Because security can't be everything that a company does, right? There's a there's you know a business to right. operate. Oh, absolutely, and that's why it's first of all so crucial to show. You you have to demonstrate how security enables the business mm -hmm. first and foremost. This the way that we treat security is kind of like this. This it's always a cost. It's 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 there to prevent bad things from happening. No, we need to look at 
how security actually enables, how it speeds up our pipelines, for instance. And so that's that's actually a lot of what I focus on with threat modeling and that whole progression I talked about before, where it goes from the left side of the pipeline through to the right. You're making that pipeline more efficient. Now, as far as prioritizing, yeah, you, you're going to see, of course, if you are in particular under the threat of a nation state actor, that's going to be pretty critical to you because you're more likely to get targeted. You're more likely to be targeted by a stronger, more coordinated, better formulated attack. Mm -hmm. But that's also dangerous to get too deep into that because there are a lot of really good lone actors out there, hacktivists, mm -hmm. if you want to use that term in some cases, or you know, people who are just looking for a target of opportunity who, if they happen to find that one thing that speaks to their skill set and they can tackle it, they will. Um, so you can use it to some degree, but what I tell people as far as implementing these, um, these controls and not going overboard, because you're right, there can be that, you can reach that point where you've spent so much time trying to implement security controls that you, you reach that point of diminishing returns and you're really not getting the risk reduction mm -hmm. that you, you want to get. I mean, that, that's what this is all about in the first place is reducing the risk to the organization. So where do you draw that line? And how I simplify this for people when I'm talking about threat modeling is for each one of those threats you identify, I want the development team to implement three controls, three types of controls, one of each. You need a monitoring control, mm -hmm. something that can monitor and detect the presence of an attack against that particular critical asset. So whatever that threat is, we've got, say, PHI, and we're worried about it being stolen. Well, how do I monitor it so that I ensure that we can detect when somebody's accessing that PHI? That's step one. The next is you need some type of mitigation defense. And mitigation defenses are really those things that give you time between when I've detected something and when there's going to be impact from it so I can use that time to react and defend. And so this is where we get into things. It, it can be simple things like just, um, you know, how do I network segmentation mm -hmm. or uh, it, it can be, you know, types of encryption, things like that. Things that would slow an attacker down and give me time to react to the fact that they're trying to access this data. Yeah. And then finally, you have your protective defenses, which are. Okay, if I want a protection control, it's something that can actively defend against an incoming attack. So how can I set up things? Again, sometimes depending on the system, that might be encryption, that might be some form of firewalling or uh, you, you know, things of that nature, whatever that's going to be, something that actively can defend against that incoming attack and ensure that a, an attacker won't be successful. So you build those three types of controls. If you think about it that way, mm -hmm. and now you can even literally document that all in your user story as you're, you know, the development team is implementing these things. Now you've got a really good set where, all right, I have, I've got some comprehensive controls around this. I haven't overspent by developing this laundry list of things and layered security. The layered security just happens by virtue of the fact that I'm working from within the context mm -hmm of a single user story. And so now as I cascade my user stories, I also get cascading controls, which is what we want when we say security in depth and all these wonderful buzzwords we <laughs> yeah. throw around. So you mentioned something earlier, which I think a lot of 
got a lot of people's attention listening to this. You said that um, implementing threat modeling in this way into your DevSecOps lifecycle will make security more efficient. What do you mean by that? And in, in, in what kinds of ways can this make security more efficient? Oh, it'll make all of development more, more efficient. I mean, from a security perspective, it's, it's that exact progression I talked about before, right? I mean, you have security being thought about from the farthest left point all the way through to post-deployment. That's what we've always wanted with security. We get that when we leverage threat modeling as a piece of our pipeline and an integral part from the very start. But, uh, you know, so we're able to design defenses from within the software and at the monitoring level and, and even, you know, post-deployment network implementations and whatnot. That's great from a security perspective. We've also got a lot of people in the organization involved. So we're offloading some of the effort that a lot of times falls to these overworked security practitioners and we've made it a cooperative effort. But what the real value to the business is, that comes when I say, hey, if we do threat modeling here, I can reduce the size of our backlog and I can accelerate our delivery and our ability to deliver more functional user stories per sprint. <clears throat> and the reason you're able to do that is once you're, I mean, it's still the same push left story. It's we're taking security into consideration from the very beginning. And so that results in fewer security issues being found late in the life cycle. Yeah. And the later we find those security issues, the more issues that ultimately end up on the backlog. And those are things that are addressing flaws. They're not addressing new functionality. They're not helping us meet our commitments to deliver new products, new functionality, new ideas, options, et cetera, to our customers. And it's those deliveries are the ones that make us revenue. Delivering security fixes or existing bugs doesn't build revenue. And so when you tie that all together in a cohesive picture and you take that to the business and you say, this is why we need to do threat modeling. You, if you can get those metrics in particular that I mentioned, like the number of functional user stories per release, mm -hmm. and you can increase those numbers using threat modeling, that becomes something that every executive will look at and they'll immediately work to, they're in your court now, they're your allies. They they're going to help you ensure that that gets adopted. They're now the champion for that because you tell an executive, I can make more money for this company, they'll be behind you <laughs> every time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense because I think what, what we're thinking from the, the traditional kind of software development practices where we're pushing new features and then we're pausing to fix all of the mistakes, right? To fix all of the security mm -hmm. vulnerabilities that were introduced. And also the, the team who's looking at that are, are quite isolated. It's just the security team who are working on that. Whereas what you're saying, instead of, of pushing left and implementing threat modeling earlier on, what we're saying is it's more collaborative across the business. And when the end product is pushed, that end product is going to have less issues because we thought of things sooner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about your, your developer in a situation where there is no threat modeling and they get a user story and they start to implement it. Maybe they've had some secure code training or they, they kind of know some things, but they send that off to testing and you know they promote it to maybe a regression test environment and some security tests run there. And all of a sudden they get all this feedback that, hey, here's all these things you got to fix yeah. that are security bugs. It, it's kind of like they throw it into the void 
and then just <laughs> wait to hear back. And then they get this feedback cycle that comes back and says, okay, now you got to fix all these things that you never even thought about before. Whereas if you've got that threat information up front and they can think about those threats early and build controls, now there's controls in there. And so when the by the time the security team gets it, security's already been thought about and you've addressed a lot of the things that ultimately that security testing would find. Yeah. And so that that alone makes such a crucial difference when, especially again, when we're sitting in DevOps and we're trying to move quick, 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 I, there, there's nothing more powerful than getting ahead of the game like that and reducing those those long feedback cycles of, hey, this you know SaaS tool is going to run and and analyze my code, or this DAS tool is going to run and it's it's going to find all sorts of functional issues and kick those security problems back to me. Yeah, I think um, this links back to right at the beginning as well, where we're talking about threat modeling being maybe broader than just security and just, um, I guess, specifically like software vulnerabilities. Because if you, if you think of like a developer trying to implement a feature and they're just working down a software specification, you know, they've been told to build these things, um, they, they might introduce like privacy risks and those kinds of things just because there was nothing in there that said you shouldn't allow this or you shouldn't allow those features. So, you know, um, without thinking about the threat modeling side of things, it could introduce like logic vulnerabilities, it could introduce privacy risks that the developer just didn't know about, especially if all they're thinking about is like secure coding practices, right? Around preventing like injection attacks and stuff like that. They're not thinking of like, how can this logic be abused? Right, exactly. I mean, how many of our developers go to detailed privacy training? Not many. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, a few might, they, they probably go to some basic, privacy training that's required for GDPR compliance or something like that. But as far as being able to actually sit there and identify, hey, this is something that is private data that I need to protect, or this is something that's going to be subject to a, a, a DSR request down the road, so I need to make sure that we can easily recover this information and share it and then delete it if it's requested. Those are the types of things you know, your developers aren't experts on GDPR. I bet if you walked up to most developers and asked them what a DSR was, they wouldn't even know <laughs> yeah, that that's yeah. a data subject request and what that means to their business. And so, yeah, being able to, to have that information put in a way that the devs can see it in plain English or whatever language, um, you know, that's, that, that's crucial. Yeah, I think I think you've raised that point a couple of times as well about using plain English or using like um, simpler language, because um, of course we we know within security we we love our acronyms and we love our technical terminology and sometimes we might use a term. The example that you gave here, of course, DSR. We might use a term in documentation that we know what it means, but if the devs don't know what it means, then they can't implement that, or if they, it might just slow them down as they go away and find out what that means. But if it's in plain English, right, or just a plain language, they can get straight on and work. Exactly. Okay, well, that sounds, that sounds pretty great. I think uh, by the end of this, we'll probably have an awful lot of uh, security advocates who've, who've listened to this. <laughs> is, that, is that a good overview then of, of threat modeling and how it plays into DevSecOps, or is there anything that we've missed? You know, I, I think we've actually covered it really well. Um, you know, the, the last thing that I just bring up anytime we're talking DevSecOps is just remember that DevSecOps and its precursor DevOps, the intention always was to create a culture. You know, we tend to get hyper-focused when we talk about DevOps or DevSecOps and CICD. 
we get so hyper-focused on tooling. How do we automate everything? It's not always necessary to automate. Sometimes just bringing collaborative groups together and getting them working together on something is, is all that's needed to accelerate your pipeline. And the reality is that's where DevOps started. If you go back to you know, Patrick Dubois back in 2008 in Belgium, that was what he was trying to do. How do I get devs and ops working better together so that it's not such a, a, a difficult butting of heads every time we try to deploy a new piece of software? And now 12 years later, we've got this ubiquitous term of DevOps and DevSecOps that uh, you know still has some cloak of mystery around it. Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, DevSecOps trying to bring out the culture of working collaboratively. And all we're saying here is um, just add a little bit of threat modeling and security into that. So it's not all about the, the culture of uh, building efficiently, but it's the culture of like understanding security as you go. Exactly. The shared responsibility across all those disciplines to create software quickly, that's stable and that's secure. That's, that's the end goal. Awesome. Well, I'm very, very happy with that uh, overview there. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add before we close? No, I think we've covered it. Um, just to say that I really appreciate the, the time to share. Um, you know, I, I speak on this topic pretty regularly. As you can probably tell from this conversation, I've got a lot of passion for it. So uh, to anyone listening out there, feel free to connect with me on social media and we can talk more. I'm always happy to share ideas or, you know, talk about other people's ideas and, and, and just see how we can continue to get better. So if people want to hear more from you, uh, where can they find you? What's your social media of choice? Um, Twitter, mostly, uh, at Alyssa M underscore infosec, probably the lamest handle ever, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, that's the easiest place by far. My DMS are always open. Um, I'm pretty active out there. Uh, you can also find me under LinkedIn as well. It's Alyssa M dash infosec, um, at the end of the URL, uh, you know, either, either place, um, are really good. Um, or the other option, if you're looking for where I'm going to be speaking next, if you go to Alyssa sec, so A L Y S S A S E C.com, I've got, you know, a blog out there that I don't keep up to date very well. I apologize for that, but <laughs> I do keep my speaking engagements pretty well updated too. So you can uh, see videos of past talks I've given or see where I'm going to be speaking next. Great. Well, we'll add those links to the show notes so people can get those uh, easily and, and find out where you're next speaking and uh, what you're currently uh, ranting on Twitter about, what's the, the latest news, that kind of thing. We'll make sure they can find you. And um, Alyssa, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.